0: Good evening, great to see you, welcome to Rez, Uh, my name is Matt, I'm one of the pastors here and it's good to be with you this evening, I ask you to open in your Bibles uh, or the Pew Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5 uh, that Sean read for us just a few moments ago, what's the page number on that? Two, six, seven. There we go. To be a Christian is really to enter into a journey. It's to commence a pilgrimage. It's a movement of the self toward the living God. Last week we saw the story of a man traveling toward the Lord. Naaman. He was a pagan general from the kingdom of Aram to the north of Israel. He was powerful and rich and famous. And yet there was just one problem. He had a chronic skin disease. He may not have known it, but this itself was an outward sign of the fact that he was cut off from the Lord. And through the witness of an Israelite, a little girl whom he had taken captive in a raid, he heard that there was a God in Israel who could heal. And this becomes the beginning of his pilgrimage, his journey toward the Lord. And Naaman does what any rich and powerful person would do in this situation. He takes with him an entourage and a whole lot of money, 750 pounds of silver, and 150 pounds of gold, approximately. He leveraged his position and wealth to seek a favor, but it didn't work. He went to the king of Israel, and all he found there was a faithless and feckless man. And just as I'm sure he was ready either to attack Israel in spite or to head home dejected, he gets a message from the prophet Elisha. Come to me. And so Naaman does this, he's desperate, and when he arrives at the prophet's house, Elisha doesn't even give him the time of day. He instead just sends a messenger out and says, go wash in the Jordan River and be healed. And Naaman is incensed by this snub, and yet, out of desperation, he humbles himself. He submits himself to the word of the prophet and this humble means of grace, this little river, this creek almost, and he goes and he's baptized. And the result is, the text tells us, he became like a little child, Figuratively, he became like a little child in his humility and literally through the healing of his skin. He entered the kingdom of heaven like a little child. And today our reading picks up with this story in verse 15. Naaman makes a confession of faith. Behold, I know that there is no God in all all the earth but in Israel. And he also offers All that is of himself to Elisha as a tribute, this representative of God. He says, take this money, take this wealth. But Elisha says, no, I will not take it. Because Elisha wants to be sure that the man really has his faith directed toward the Lord. And Naaman evidently gets it because he responds by asking for two things. He says, first, give me two wagon loads of promised land dirt so that I can go back and make an altar in my home country so that I can worship the God of Israel. And then he says, and please pardon me when I, as part of my job, have to go into this pagan temple with the king. And Elisha says, go in peace. This is a story of conversion. Naaman has journeyed toward the Lord. He has entered a life of journeying towards the Lord. He's moved from unbelief to faith. From leprosy to the Lord. And the name and account could really stand alone, couldn't it? It's a good story. It's a happy ending. But it doesn't in the text. Instead, in the passage we're going to look at today, from verses 17 to 25, or 15 to 27, uh, it slides into a mirror image story. A story of apostasy, or journey away from the Lord. It's completed, this story by an account of how Gehazi, Elisha's right-hand man, finds himself on a journey from the Lord to leprosy, from faith to unbelief. And this mirror image story is really important for us to hear because, well, apostasy happens. There is not a possibility of stasis in the Christian life. You can never have just arrived. And we're either on the journey of Naaman towards the Lord or we're journeying away from the Lord. And so this this story we're gonna pick up now in verse 19 shows us an archetypal example of how a person can move away from the living God. And it serves as a warning to us as we seek to continue in our pilgrimage Uh, towards God. I want to get into the passage with you, but first, let's pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Speak to us now. Call us to yourself. Your servants are listening. Amen. Here's the first thing I want you to see about this reverse journey. The journey of of apostasy begins with the nourishing of disordered desires. Apostasy starts not merely having disordered desires, but by cherishing them, embracing them. Apostasy originates in disordered desires. Look at verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, he says this. Or sorry, look at verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said... See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Who's Gehazi talking to here? He's talking to himself. He's ruminating on something he wants, and he's talking himself into why he's entitled to have it. And it isn't that hard for him to do. I mean... It wouldn't have been wrong in the first place for Elijah to accept a tribute from this man. And it's a famine in the land during this time. Gehazi and all the the sons of the prophets could use these resources for good things. Plus, we're talking about this Naaman, the Syrian, this sworn enemy of the people of Israel. And so before you know it, Gehazi has baptized his desire as something holy. He says, as the Lord lives, I will chase down this object of my desire. I think it's important to see what's wrong with the desire Gehazi nourishes because there are things that are clearly wrong to desire, but there's a, something more subtle that often happens where we desire things that are in themselves good, but in the wrong way. We want them to the wrong degree or we want them at the wrong time. Look at what Elisha says, uh, what Elisha asks Gehazi down in verse 26. He says, was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? It's sort of a weird question in a way because Gehazi's only received money and garments. Why does Elisha mention sheep and oxen and olive orchards and vineyards? Well, these things he mentions here are biblical signs that are associated with the blessing of flourishing in the land as God's covenant people. And by invoking this full catalog of covenant blessings, Elisha recognizes that there isn't anything inherently wrong with the thing that Gehazi has pursued. But his question is, Was it a time? The implication is that there is a proper time. But this is not it. See, Elisha knows this is the time of judgment on Israel. This is not the time of flourishing in the land. This is the time to wait patiently on the Lord, not to seize things oneself. The desire for the blessings that Gehazi wants have to be subordinated to the worship of, and dependence on God. But Gehazi has it all backwards. He doesn't know it, but his, disor- his desires are disordered. They're untimely. Now, if you're at all self-reflective, as you hear this, you'll, you should have a little bit of trepidation. What if the desires which I'm fully convinced are good and holy are actually disordered or untimely and I don't even know it? I think there's a way to kind of suss this out and it's pretty simple it's right here in this story look again at what Gehazi says he says as the Lord lives I will run after him and get something from him Gehazi is convinced that it all depends on him he doesn't ask for the blessing from the Lord he's not sent by the Lord It's not coming to him as a gift that he receives with thankfulness. He's anxious, and he's angry, and he's entitled, and he has to leave the path and the place to which he's called to get this thing. And in the same way, when we're wanting something, even if it's a a good thing, if it makes us anxious, requires us to go out of the path of prayerfulness and thanksgiving and Fidelity to God's word and Christian community, that is a flashing red light. If we think we've got to go seize this ourselves or it is never going to happen, that's a flashing red light that we're nourishing, even if it's a good thing, a disordered desire, an untimely desire. I mean, think what Jesus said as he's telling people not to be anxious. He says, it is, your, it is the Father's will to give you the kingdom, little flock. But Gehazi doesn't believe that. And so often we don't believe that. And if we cherish those desires, we're entering into dangerous territory. It's just a short step before we start on the road to away or away from the Lord. Apostasy always starts with what seems like just a little detour. It's just a little detour. But it's not. So I ask you, what are the objects of your desires? What are the things that have captured your imagination, that dominate your daydreams? Some of them you might know instinctively are disordered, but it can be a little bit more subtle than that. What are the things that tempt you to leave the path of faithfulness to obtain them? It begins with this nourishing and cherishing of these desires. Proverbs 4.24 says, uh, Keep your heart with all keeping, for out of it flow the issues of life. What's going on in your heart? Your desire. That's the first stage in this journey. Here's the second. The journey of apostasy progresses by way of deception and secrecy. It happens as we hide the truth from others and ultimately from ourselves. Apostasy has this way of ripping us apart with secrecy. What Gehazi does is shot through with deception and secrecy. In verse 24, he deceives Naaman, the new convert, and says, Oh, I'm coming to get just a portion of the the wealth for someone else. And Elisha sent me. Sorry, verse 22. In verse 24, on his way back, he stashes his booty somewhere else. No one can know about it. It's a secret he has to keep. In verse 25, Elisha asks him where he has been, and he lies to his master. And in this poignant phrase that's amazing, he says, your servant has been nowhere. It's probably the truest thing he said. He's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. From start to finish, it's about how a disordered desire requires and operates through deception and secrecy. To pursue this desire, Gehazi cannot be truthful with anyone, not with Naaman, not with Elisha. But I think what's also true here is that he deceives himself. Right at the beginning, when Naaman sees him and jumps down from the chariot to greet him, he says, "Is all well, and Gehazi says... All is well. I think he really believes that. He doesn't even realize what is wrong. He thinks he can live two lives. He thinks he can serve two masters. He thinks he can handle keeping all this secret. But he can't. It eventually comes out. Now, Gehazi's secret comes out in a moment of divine revelation through the prophet. Elisha says, I know where you've been. And such a moment awaits all of us, the scriptures tell us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that when the Lord returns, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. But we should also know that if we're pursuing disordered desires in secret, it's going to take its effect on us here and now, too. Recently, some psychologists from Columbia and Stanford published some new research into the effect of harboring secrets. And what they found is that what secrets do, maintaining secrets that are of personal importance to you, serious things, when you do that, you end up with this plaguing sense of fatigue, a, a, a sense of being ripped apart. Because on the one hand, you've got, they call it a motivational conflict. You've got this motivation that I've got to keep this thing secret. Because I'm afraid of the social implications if it gets out. But then you are deeply desirous of real communion with other people. And so you're kind of just exhausted and pulled apart. And this, they say, explains what they've known about keeping secrets from other studies that people who live with these deep secrets that they have a higher rate of depression and anxiety, low relationship quality, poor health. It's just confirming what the Bible tells us again and again, that a divided life is not possible. And we deceive ourselves if we think that our our disordered desires, pursued in secret, will not ultimately rip us apart we'll find ourselves unable to connect with God, with other people, and ultimately with ourselves. The antidote to this destructive power of deception and secrecy is confession. We do a version of this at the beginning of every service. We come and we confess our sins to God. And this is not uh, because God needs to know what we've done and what we've been thinking and desiring. He already knows. It's because we need to reintegrate our divided selves before his presence, bring them into the light of his purifying love and experience forgiveness, not a change in God, but, but that wholeness within his love. And, so many th- and for, for many things in our lives, this act of private confession is sufficient. But there are times when we're harboring secrets, habits that metastasize. Metastasize, is that how you say it? And they're dividing us. And we need to confess to God in the presence of others. James 5:16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, sometimes you need to name that thing out loud. That desire, that thing that you've been doing, that thing that's plaguing you with guilt, you need to name it out loud to someone who will neither give you license and say, it's okay, nor will they condemn you, but will hold together truth and love, God's holiness and mercy. And when you do that, you find it liberating. You find, if it's a desire or temptation you've been experiencing, you think, What was I thinking? Now that I've said it out loud, that's crazy. It would destroy my life, my family, my church. It exposes to you this delusional nature, and it also allows you to stop condemning yourself and to experience the love of God in an objective manner. Look, all of us have things we need to confess. Fantasies we're ruminating over, addictions we're developing, actions that have caused a plaguing guilt—maybe more subtle but profound reorderings of our aims and motivations—and we need a Christian friend or two or three, with whom we can be really honest about what's going on. If you don't have someone, find someone. Come to a pastor. We have this thing in our prayer book called the reconciliation of a penitent. It's confession. If you have someone, but you're not availing yourself of this remedy, what are you waiting for? Don't be like Gehazi. When his friend, Elisha, says, where have you been? He says, oh, I've gone nowhere. He insists on living in the darkness. Come into the light. See, the journey of apostasy progresses through deception. It divides us. That's the second thing. Here's the last thing. The journey ends in death. It results in disconnection from God and the things of God. Um, The whole story of Gehazi is really a, a poignant illustration of what James says in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Disordered desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. It's actualized, it's conceived, it progresses through uh, this deception and secrecy. And then continuing, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Death. That's the sentence that's pronounced over Gehazi in verse 27. Elisha says, Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And then Gehazi goes out from the presence of the prophet, marked with the curse. And we only hear from him again in uh, chapter 8, just one time. And he's kind of in the king's court, chilling, reminiscing about the old days. He's just sort of around. He's gone. He's cut off. He's dead. He's, He's gone from the Lord to leprosy. The story is a warning to all of us that nourishing the desires and living a double life can ultimately result in death, spiritually now and for eternity. It's, it's frightening. But here's the difference between Gehazi and us. The final sentence has not yet been pronounced. If you're here today, you cannot see yourself fully in the person of Gehazi, not with any finality. You should see yourself in him as a warning, but not with finality. Why? Because the sentence has not been pronounced. Instead, we see Christ, a much greater than Gehazi, an anti-Gehazi, who went from the Lord to leprosy on our behalf. We see him who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We see the one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, bearing in himself our own sin and illness. We see him who is our great and merciful high priest, who made a once and for all sacrifice for us, and to whom we can come with all of our weaknesses and our sins, and our guilt, and find healing from the death that would otherwise destroy us. Have you been slipping away? Nourishing disordered desires, pursuing sin in secret, experiencing deadness in your life? Maybe you're on that kind of a journey right now, taking a detour, Going from the Lord to leprosy. You're traveling down that road. Well, on that road, there comes one headed in the opposite direction. Christ, who's triumphed over all those things and who's risen from the dead. Here he comes and he's headed in the opposite direction. He's ascending to the Father and he says, come with me. Stop being like Gehazi. You don't have to continue on this path. Recognize your true desperation. Confess your sins to me. Follow me and be renewed again like a little child. He says this journey you're on, it ends in deadness, disconnection. It will make your life barren. You don't have to go that way any longer. In just a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. This is the Lord beckoning you, Christian. Come to me. Come journey with me. Return to me, says the Lord. So there you have it, two journey stories. One of conversion, moving to the Lord, moving from leprosy to the Lord, and one of apostasy, moving from the Lord to leprosy. And there's no possibility of stasis. You're either moving toward life in the Lord or you're moving away from the Lord. Which journey are you on? The Lord says, return to me. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit.